Welcome to Color Me Dead. This is a true crime podcast, and we talk about murder and fuckery most foul in detail while using the darkest of humor. If you don't like words like fuck and cunt, then you probably shouldn't listen. But if you do, then join us while we fuck your feelings. Mirai. Why not? I'm ready. All right, let's fucking do this. Let's do this. Let's do it. Welcome back, everybody. We are on the final episode, episode 98. Yes, we are. Part four, the murder of Emmett Till. So we are on the trial of Roy Bryant and J.W. Milne. And if you don't know what happened before this, go back for, for the last tree. Now, before we get into this, if you guys want to check us out and search other shows, look at the bazaar, look at our sponsors, you can see us at ageofradio.org slash dead. And if you have Instagram, go to the hashtag Age of Radioverse, and you can see a lot of stuff from the Age of Radio Network on there. And if you guys want to pick up some merch that we have available through Threadless, you can go to colormedeadpod.threadless.com. Also, if you would like to donate to our Patreon, you can do that through Patreon, or you can do it through Age of Radio. And we want to say a great big thank you to our top-tier Pledges. Uh, Jesus, I forgot the word. Me too. I was like, wait, it starts with an E. Examinators. Examinators. We have Rhett Harris, Samantha Vaughn, Sharon Hoffman, and Melissa Morgan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Also, if you guys want to check us out on social media, you can see us at at Color Me Dead Pod on Twitter. We are Color Me Dead Podcast on Facebook with the Color Me Dead Podcast group also on Facebook. And on Instagram. Color Me Dead Podcast. I was, I was going to tell you, but I don't know. Color Me Dead Podcast. If and you want to follow Nikki. I'm Gory underscore Nikki. And I am Color Me Dead Angel. All right. So we're going to get into the trial. Now, you guys are aware of the background of Emmett Till and his uh, beautiful mother, Mamie. Um, we also talked about Carolyn Bryant, the Bryant Millam clan. We talked about the murder of Emmett Till. Um, how his body was returned to his mom and his funeral, and now we're wrapping it all up with yeah. the with the trial. So prepare yourself to make all of the what the fuck faces. Yeah, because if you didn't, if you thought that you were making those through the first three, yeah, here you go. Yep, yep, yep. Here we go. Here we now, go. Now there was a man that was a he had allowed his home to kind of become the command center around Emmett's. Um, Emmett's trial, his murderer's trial. And he, it was, no more, no more energy drinks. (laughs) Getting a little excited. So anyway, he had turned his home into kind of a command center for black people that were going to be involved with this. Now there, now whether it was like um, black politicians or witnesses or Mamie herself, his home was kind of this fortress where everybody was gathering. His name was Dr. Theodore Roosevelt Mason Howard. Now, Dr. Howard was a civil rights leader and a top entrepreneur, as well as a chief surgeon at the hospital. He was also a member of the International Order of the Twelve Knights and Daughters of Tabor, which was a fraternal organization in Mound Bayou, Mississippi. So this fraternal organization was founded, occupied, and governed by the freedmen after the Civil War. Now, while he was there, he also founded an insurance company, restaurant, hospital, home construction firm, and he also had a large farm where he raised cattle, quail, and hunting dogs, and also 
cotton. He had built a small zoo and a park, as well as the first swimming pool for blacks in Mississippi. So he was quite a busy little bee. Yes, he was. Yes. Now, in addition to his regular duties at the hospital, he also operated a very uh, well-known and popular private practice. So here's something interesting. His specialties also included discreet provision of illegal probotions. It rhymes with smismortion. (laughs) And both black and white people went to his clinic for smismortions. Wait, pick me. (laughs) Go. Is it an abortion? Yes. Okay. Okay, because apparently I can't say that. (laughs) Which he thought was a matter of individual rights as well as family family flamming. (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna be that kind of a day all right so he thought was an individual right as well as family planning which i thought was really cool yeah um because he didn't discriminate against white women that were looking to have that help yeah which do you think white doctors that took care of those illegal abortions said no to many a black women i'll bet you they fucking did oh i'm sure they did also he favored legalizing plus prostitution he just likes all the sex well so here's his thing he favored legalizing prostitution arguing that a man's sinful nature made it impossible to suppress the sex trade which all i mean right. he's not fucking wrong uh, plus it's the world's oldest profession Turder. yeah i mean had i been a little bit more more desirable in a, at, at a younger age, no, fuck it, let's face facts, I couldn't. I'd get in there. If somebody was like, tickle me with a feather and call me a chicken while you choke me. I'd be like, what? I'll call you a chicken fucker. <laughs> like, for, for five I, bucks, I'll call a guy a chicken fucker. I can't. I can't fucking. I, I, I got to give props to women that can do all of that and make a living like Air Force Amy at the fucking cat house, at the bunny ranch. <laughs> yeah. Like, good for you, bitch. Good for you. No, anyway. it's not my it's not my not my calling nope now dr howard rose to prominence as a civil rights leader after he founded the regional council of negro leadership was called the rcnl in 1951 now he and his compatriots in the league which also included uh medgar evers from the naacp that was helping mamie with the open Mm -hmm. casket funeral Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. so um anyway he had actually hired him as his agent for the magnolia mutual life insurance company so the rcnl had mounted a successful boycott against service stations that denied restrooms to black people and they're they they distributed over twenty thousand bumper stickers right and their slogan for this was don't buy gas where you can't use the restroom I second that. I fully fucking endorse that. Why would you buy gas if you can't take a P2? Why would you buy gas from somebody that thinks you're a fucking second class citizen? Exactly. Don't give them your money. No. If you can't pee there, don't buy your gas there. Just saying. Simple rules. Fuck. I thought that was rad. When I read that, I was like, hell yeah. So... His home that had become this little command center was open to journals, journals, journalists, mm-hmm. witnesses, and evidence seeker for the Till trial. Now, people described his described his home as something as of a like a compound. Okay. Now, when you think of a compound, we joke about that because we're like, yes. oh, hashtag compound life. No, it fucking was. No, it was for it wasn't our kind. It was for real. It was a litz. A, a, li- a litz. 
Hi, my name is Angel. I have licks Decky's hair today. <laughs> Fuck. All right. I just caught on to that. It took me a moment. <laughs> and then it was really funny. I was like, you have what? I, the word was funny. And then when I really got onto what it was, it was really funny. <laughs> it was extra funny. Extra. extra? <laughs> so his, his house had the highest level of securities that anybody had seen. There were literally weapons tucked in every corner of every room. Okay. This reminds me of Dickie. <laughs> oh my God, my father. I mean, you're not wrong. I know. I got this here fucking squirrel gun that I keep at the foot of my bed with my... Oh, fuck. My father. Anyway. <laughs> when, yeah, when I was reading that, I was like, it's Dickie. Oh my God. Yeah, it's my dad. It's Just my weapon. dad. It's my father. Fucking guns everywhere. Strapped to the ceiling tucked in his shoes god knows don't know. ever break into like if you see a single wide trailer on the side of a fucking road in the middle of a louisiana bayou don't fuck around that's probably my dad and he has guns and so do his possums <laughs> <laughs> and so do his possums okay <laughs> now <laughs> now there was a 357 a 357 magnum pistol that was sitting on his nightstand and if he rolled over to the other side of his bed not my father dr howard yes we're, we're back we're, on we're, track we're now. back here stay with me <laughs> dr howard had a 45 semi-automatic sitting on the other nightstand and in the corner there was a shotgun or a rifle and there was a thompson submachine gun at the foot of his bed all right. Okay. Now, some people are like, why do you have a rifle and a shotgun in every corner of every room of a large property? And he also had a guard station in the front of his property that had 24-hour armed security. Okay. So, what was the reason for all of this? Well, if you remember in the prior episode, we had talked about George Lee and Lamar Smith, the two black men that were assassinated, that were helping trying to register black voters. Well, apparently, their names had been put on a death list, finger quotes, death list. And guess who else's name was on the death list? Dr. Howard. Hmm. And this was actually a citizen's council for like improvements had created this death list of people that they need to get needed to get rid of because these people were detrimental to the society. Can okay. I, can we make a list? I I already have a lipstick list. I mean, we can add to it if you'd like to, but I so feel like the dude on um Billy Madison. Shit, yeah, Steve yeah. Buscemi. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't think of his name. I could see his face. He's like the lipstick list. <laughs> yep. <laughs> when you said lipstick list, I was like, oh, so get down with that. After, so after George Lee and Lamar Smith had actually been assassinated for trying to help the voters, and then he, you know Dr. Howard realizes that his name is also on this list, he decided to take all of the precautions that he would need to sleep like sleep comfortably on his own property. Now, knowing that Dr. Howard was the epicenter of this, like, seek, truth-seeking situation, there was a young man, a farmhand by the name of Frank Young, who actually traveled 80 miles by foot and hitchhiking to get to his home. Hitchhiking. Damn. And foot. 80 miles. Long way. You know what now, happens to people in Florida that do that? I'm just saying, do you know what happens to people anywhere that hitchhike? I mean, right. we could really... 
Mm-hmm. We don't need. We don't necessarily need to call out Eileen Mornos, but or you know we don't have to talk about. Um, shit! I forgot her name. I can see her fucking face. Hello, Mary Vincent. Yes, hitchhiking, lost her fucking arms. I knew who you were talking about as soon as you started doing that, and I I'm like, like, I'm like showing you my what? hands. I know who you're talking about. What was her name? What was? It? Yeah, What's your Mary name? Vincent. Now, this young man showed up in the middle of the night and he was talking about it was the day before the trial was set to start, okay? And he's like, "Hey, I have some information. I really needed to do- I really need to talk to Dr. Howard. It's got to happen right now." And so the guards are listening to this guy and in this situation like they were really hesitant to wake Dr. Howard up because he had been up like night and day preparing for all of this stuff. And they were like, man, it's the middle of the night, the day before the trial, like this better be good. Okay. Mm-hmm. The kid's like, I have witnesses that can tell you this didn't happen in Tallahatchie County county which would move the jurisdiction additionally he's like i have witnesses that can tie Millum to the murder hmm. so they're like oh come on in let's talk let's chat <clears throat> so he had all of these witnesses that had pretty much seen the final moments of emmett till's life and um he wanted to come in and he was like hey this should actually be tried in sunflower county not tallahatchie and he was like multiple people know that roy bryant and jw millam are responsible Mm -hmm. so he comes in he gets in front of dr howard and he's like there were three to four black workers seen in a white and green chevy pickup that went onto a plantation in sunflower county that was managed by leslie millam now if you remember when i talked about the actual murder of emmett till when they rolled onto the property it was leslie millam that had come out and been like god damn it i work in the morning what the use the fucking shed and be done but then that creepy son of a bitch came out and was like well i better get my licks in too of course because you woke me up i might as well i like i I can't go back to sleep i'm up all right i'm up i'll join in that's kind of where it all went fuck yeah stupid fuck you sick prick i don't like you no this is one of those people that i wouldn't have any problem like rear-ending them into oncoming traffic Mm -hmm. just saying booty bump (laughs) pink (laughs) you bum bump Uh. (laughs) fuck around got a bum bump (laughs) so um anyway they said that it was early morning august 28th of 1955 now there were four white men that were in the cab and there were two black men in the back that were believed to be len uh levi collins and henry lee loggins who both worked for jw millam now they were sitting in the back supposedly on either side and they had emmett in the middle and multiple people had seen this so young and the others that had seen that witnessed the bunch going into the shed They had heard the proceedings of the vicious beating, and then Young and the others he was talking about had actually snuck closer to the shed to, like, see things, which, fuck, man, you're a brave goddamn soul. Uh If you're a black person sneaking around in 1955 on a white person's property so that you can get a better idea of, like, what they're actually doing, that's a pretty bold move, my friend. Especially seeing what they were doing. Right? Damn. Fuck. so they had actually gotten closer to where emmett was being held and that's when they saw jw come out when he was all sweaty and shit went to the well got a drink of water and then went back to finish the job now someone had actually gone fetched the truck drove it into the shed and that's when the vehicle came out it had the tarp on the back and emmett was no longer visible 
So there were people, That's not sad. just that perpetrated the com- the crime, but had actually saw this all go down. Now, Frank Young stated that he and the others were able to come and tell their stories. So Dr. Howard had already given up his home as like a safe haven for quite a few other people's yeah. peoples. Peoples. English, I fucking speak it. Ish. Now, sort of <laughs> debatable depending on the amount of caffeine coursing through my fucking veins. How many bangs have you had? Two. Two. Two bangs. Utah. Give me two. Utah. Give me two. <laughs> um, actually, it's more like one and a quarter. Like there was just a little bit left in one that I put in the fridge. Ah. So. Uh, Anyways. I gotcha. Um, so there were a lot of crucial visitors that were going to be arriving or had already arrived when like because Dr. Howard had actually paid to bring Mamie from Chicago and was ho- like housing her. Yeah. Um, on his property for the trial. So he had actually said that he was going to use his money to bring her from Chicago and then keep her safe on his property and then escort her with security to the trial, Aww. which I know, which she probably was going to fucking need. Uh-huh, all of it. Absolutely. Or she would have ended up the same way. Well, there was also a representative. Um, he was a black politician excuse me, a black politician named Charles Diggs that had actually come down with her. Now, he was the only politician to show up to the trial. He was actually invited. Um, but we'll get into that in a second. Now, the the doctor, Howard, had also been leading a group called the Mississippi Underground, which you'll hear me refer, refer, refer to. Refer to it. <laughs> be the you idiot refer to them am you i <laughs> sorry 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 about that <laughs> fear the gas get your shit all of that put it in a grip a talk about the episode like you can speak the queen's english if you could speak the queen's english it would sound a little different i'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> you ain't fucking kidding bitch so um anyway it was called the mississippi underground and it was a group of people that were seeking the witnesses and they had actually done the most effective investigation about emmett's murder like outside of mississippi authorities and they were going to protect and then relocate all of the witnesses that were willing to testify in the trial. Because let's face it, if you're a black person going in to a white people's court with a jury of your peers, you know, all 12 of those fucking farmers that happen to be all fucking white, uh-huh. and point out with your black finger and say, that white guy sitting right there, he fucking did it. You probably don't have anywhere to go after that. No. Not in Mississippi, you don't. No. So, they were actually... So, the Mississippi Underground, this group, was not only going to protect them prior to the trial, but afterwards, and then they were going to relocate these people out of Mississippi at their cost. Like witness protection. Yes. On your own. Yep. Now, there was a reporter by the name of James Hicks from the Mississippi Underground that went to a place called Kings and Glendora. Now, he had kind of gone up there to put his ear to the ground and try to get some dirt on, you know, because people talk. You get into a bar, you start having drinks, you get loose lips. What do we know about loose lips? <laughs> loose lips sink ships. Yeah, they so, do. Fuck. Mm. Keep so them he, lips tight. Do your kegels in your mouth. 
like those girls with the little pussies like this. Like this. She's got little lips. You just got a little pussy. You ain't got that big camel toe like auntie. <laughs> it's pium, a pium, pium. It's a pium, pium, pium. Pium, pium, pium. I fucking love that lady. She's got little lips. Like this. Like this here. Go pium, 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 pium. She ain't got that big camel toe like auntie. You got them small lips. Like this here. Pium, pium, pium. Are you, it's my face, isn't it? And then I picture her face, <laughs> and I can't stop when she does it. And she's like, "Look at her, look at her, pew pew pew, cock in her head, pew pew pew, pew pew It's a chop. It's a chop. She's so goddamn funny. All right, it never gets old. It never does. Ever. It really just does not. Okay, back at the ranch. Fucking get your shit. Uh-uh. Take it to the shit store and sell it. Take it to a shit museum, but get your shit together. Okay. All right. Now, he had gone to this place called King's. All right. He's out there dancing, hanging out with the locals. And as expected, somebody fucking started letting shit fly. And it was said that Sheriff Strider from Tallahatchie, the fuckhead sheriff, super racist, mm. he went and arrested the two men that worked for JW and put them in jail Uh, so that they couldn't uh. be found for the trial. Now, not only did Sheriff Strider take Levi Collins and Henry Lee Loggins and put them in a jail in Charleston, he put them, he booked them in under false names. What? So that people couldn't find them. So if, you know, people from the Mississippi, uh, sorry, Mississippi Underground or other people started, you know, looking for these guys and they're like, hey, fuck, I think they may have been involved. They might be able to testify. You know, shit, maybe they're in jail. And then they get up there and they're like, hey, do you have Levi Collins or Henry Lee Loggins? And, you know, whoever's there looks at it and says, we don't have anybody by those names. So Sheriff Shithead, Sheriff Strider, thought, well, he didn't think. He fucking did his due diligence when it was time to fucking hide people. Of course he For did. his benefit. Mm-hmm. So, that being said, they're being held under false fucking names. Now, that was taken back to the Mississippi Underground, and they were like, well, shit, you know. <laughs> shit, Dad, you're not watching? They got Patrick. <laughs> 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 shit. Shit. But that's kind of where, it, you know, they're like, fuck, we can't find these guys. Well, it's because they're being held captive in a fucking jail in a different county under wrong names. So after the midnight visit from Frank Young, Dr. Howard had actually reached out to quite a, vis- uh, quite a few of his own colleagues. And a lot of them were already stationed at his house. But um, he brought them in and wanted to start talking about this news. Like, hey, two of the people we've been looking for, we're not going to find them because they're being... They're rat-holed away in a jail somewhere under false name. And on a, on a brighter note, we have this guy, and this guy has three other people that are willing to fucking testify. Well, that Monday, while a jury was being selected for the trial, Dr. Howard and his team had gone looking for witnesses that can, could confirm mm-hmm. Frank Young's story and confirm the suspicion that James Hicks was like, you know, they've, they've got these guys, but you can't find them. They're in jail. Uh-huh. So... I know. Oh, fuck. It just gets worse. So if you're irritated now, <laughs> hold on to your ass because it gets a lot worse. You might as well shove a piece of hay up your, under your fingernail. Oh, yeah. Bamboo shoots. Yeah. Uh, something. 
So there were four altogether that would later come to Dr. Howard at his home and give their testimonies of what they had seen slash heard. I know. I don't like it. And it's so disgusting when you stop and think about what they actually heard. Like you had, you heard a little boy begging for his fucking life. Mm -hmm. So, fucker. I know. So this would link the defendants to the murder through eyewitnesses account. Like, Mm -hmm. yay. One for the good guys. You would think. No. Now, later in the evening, that Monday, the members of the Mississippi Underground, black reporters, and some other civil rights leaders had actually gotten together to discuss what was going to happen next. Now, they all agreed that a white reporter would be better to come in and make headway to the local law enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. Because as a group of, I don't want to say militant, but, you know, these really hardcore civil rights leaders, black, black men... You're not going to get a very warm reception meandering into a sheriff's office where it's full of white sister fuckers and <laughs> sister fuckers. <laughs> Let's go back to the station and cornhole us a drunk. Like, that's kind of yeah. what I envision. And I'm sure I'm Me wrong. Too. I'm just being a cunt. I, but you might not be, though. I it, might not be. Yeah, that's the scary part. So it was probably going to be, not probably, it was going to be better for them to commission a white person, right. a journalist or a reporter, to go in and be like, so, uh, and start delivering some things like, yeah. hey, we've got some other people. Now, they had agreed that it would be a, ju- a gentleman by the name of uh, Clark Porteous, and they advised him to come so that they could discuss this plan. Mm-hmm. However, they forgot to tell Mr. Porteous that him and only one other person by the name of John Popham were allowed to come. Like, just you two white guys. Nobody else. No more white guys. Yeah, but they forgot to say that. Oops. So, yeah. So, the accident actually yielded two other men by the name of W.C. Shoemaker and James Featherston that would come along. Now, one of them was actually a reporter from a paper that was one of the most reactionary segregationist papers in all of Mississippi. So, like, they picked, like, the one white guy from this paper that they were like, fuck, that guy shouldn't have been here. (laughs) Now, instead of rethinking the plan and trying to hold the knowledge that he you know he was like dr howard's looking at this situation he's like oh yeah i forgot to tell you not to bring anybody it's kind of like when you tell somebody i'm gonna tell you but you don't tell anybody but they told somebody but then that person goes in and like tells four other people i'm gonna tell you but you don't tell anybody and they tell four people and they tell four people so dr howard said i'm gonna tell you a little bit i'm not gonna give you the whole uh But, you know, because I'm looking at this person that probably might run back to his paper and spill the beans. He was like, I've got some tricks up my sleeve. And he told him exactly what he had. I have eyewitness accounts that'll knock this fucking trial out of jurisdiction and out of the park. So after some time, he advised that they would be the only white people to to be a like even the guy from the fucking segregationist paper, he was like, all right, you're already here, so just you fuckers can come back. Mm-hmm. So anytime that the the MU, the Mississippi Underground, had a meeting, he was like, all right, just you three. That is it. That is all. That's all you get. So um, anyway, they were holding another meeting that was going to be on Tuesday. And the, so the three white guys were like, okay, we'll be quiet for now. Like, what you've given us is pretty big, but we'll be quiet for now, especially because they wanted to keep attending these meetings. So they were like, all right, 
We'll be quiet. You got some witnesses and some other shit. We'll be quiet for now. Now, Tuesday morning yielded some drama by like 10 o'clock in the morning. It was like mid-morning break and shit hits the fan. So Mamie Till had entered the courtroom with Rayfield Moody and her father, John Cartham. She was said to have walked in quietly, but with purpose. And she walked right down the center of the courtroom. (laughs) Yeesh. The way she conducted herself the entire time is just, dude, it hits you right here in the heart. How could anybody be that strong? That's what I keep thinking of is how could you be that strong and not just go hide? Just crumple. Like I'm one of those people that when faced with too much, my entire, like my body does a fucking and I just power off and I crawl in bed and I'm like, me too. At this particular juncture, I'm actually thinking about pissing my own pants because getting up to go to the bathroom just might be too much. Yeah. Like, this woman? No. She arrives, walks right down the center of the courtroom. Now, as you can imagine, she's immediately surrounded by reporters, photographers. They're all snapping, you know, they're clamoring around, snapping photos, shouting questions. And they want to get either words or images of her. So before she even has a chance to, like, get to the what they call the black table. So that was where witnesses, reporters, yeah. things of that nature were supposed to, you know, because we're still segregated in Mississippi. Yeah. So before she can even get there and like situate herself, here comes fucking Sheriff Strider. Okay? Of course. Of fucking, because like you do in Mississippi, big dick swinging sticks, fucking walking tall, hands her a subpoena. Okay. And he's like, now, you're in the state of Mississippi, and we got rules here, and you'll fucking conduct yourself as such. That makes me roll my eyes. Yeah, if I roll my eyes any fucking harder, I'm probably going to have a seizure. I think I saw my ass. I'm pretty sure you did. So, that's essentially what he did, was basically telling her that, like, you're in the state of Mississippi now, and you will conduct yourself by our rules and our state, you know, requirements of you being a black person in our court. Like, never mind that she was there, because... Your it was son, her child. Your fucking sons of the South murdered her kid. So. Fuck. That, so at this point, and she just looks at him. She's like, yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. With all the dignity in the world, she looks, she's like, you know, she doesn't look directly at him, but she acknowledges. Yes, sir. You are under the rule of Mississippi. Conduct yourself as such. Yes, sir. Now, no, motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> motherfucker. Fucking Byron, motherfucker. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. If you guys don't know who Byron was, he was somebody my brother was in jail listen with. Listen to the so-sodes. Listen, listen to the goddamn We explained it so- in there, motherfuckers. Motherfucker, you lucky I don't hit you with toilet paper. Did you fart it? Did you just fart it? Um, so, you know, because Mamie didn't already know all of that being in Mississippi, it took all 270 pounds of fucking six-foot-tall Sheriff Strider to come up there with his fucking, you will conduct yourself... As he's got a beer in his hand. Well, so he bellies up to Mamie to fucking intimidate her. And she's just, yes, sir. Now, she was finely dressed. She was in a black hat with the veil folded back in a bl- like a black dress with a white collar. Mm-hmm. And she carried a very ornate fan with her to fan herself. Now, keep in mind, this is late summer in Mississippi with not a goddamn breeze rolling through the state. It's hot as it's fuck. Hot. So she's carrying this black and red Um, ornamental fan that she's like fanning herself with now she gets to the table where she's directed to sit and the table itself wasn't big enough to hold everybody that came so judge get this his name is judge swango 
Swango. 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 S-W-A-N-G-O. Josh Swango. Swango. It actually sounds like a cheap root beer. <laughs> Swango. Like Fago. <laughs> Only it, not. It reminds me of that TikTok thing where they're like, is there a ghost out there? If there's a ghost out there, say, why, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Swango. So Judge Swango actually pulled together more tables um, up to the front of the courtroom where the press table could also sit with the witnesses and everybody else. But he had to expand the section because there were so many people that had arrived. Now, keep in mind that this room full of people, both black and white, are trapped in here. People are smoking in there. There's like one ceiling fan. Now, keep in mind, this is when you were still allowed to smoke indoors and people smoked cigars, cigarettes, roll your owns in this hot ass, 100 degree fucking courtroom. Now, even though Representative Diggs had in he had been invited by the judge to attend the trial. When he got there, his entry into the building was actually denied by Sheriff Strider. Right. Sheriff Shithead. Sheriff Shithead strikes again. Now, he had shown up and Diggs had to send his business card. Representative Diggs gives his business card to another man, reporter Hicks, and says, present this to the judge. This needs to go to the judge. Now, I'm not going to use the same language, but essentially, Sheriff Strider takes the business card, looks at it, points to one of his deputies and goes, hey, this N-word here said that N-word here is allowed here by the judge. Take this and make sure. Oh, God. Yeah. You're pretty fucking cool, aren't you? Sheriff Shithead. Fuck. I don't like him. I, like, dude, when I was typing this, I was grinding with my teeth, which you know is really bad for me because my teeth break. Like, all you got to do is be, like, pink and my fucking teeth break. So he goes in, hands the business card to the judge, and he's like, this gentleman's outside. That's not the word he used. This N-word's outside said you said he could come. So the judge is like, yeah, I invited him here. He needs to be sat at this table. Now, there were quite a few people that were really, really upset by the way that other people addressed Representative Diggs because they spoke to him like an actual goddamn person and they referred to his referred to him as Congressman. Oh, nice. Congressman Diggs. Yeah. So, of course, all the white bread racist Southern folk are like, what the fuck? Like, they just can't handle all of the, you know, humanity in the building. Now, when he walked into the building, there were white reporters there that were like, Congressman Diggs, and they shook his hand. And there's like, fuck, for all intents and purposes, it's like the fucking Klansman. Oh, do you just shake hands with that man? Oh, no. Right. So they're, they're, you know, God forbid that you actually address a congressman who's in Congress properly but yeah they just like they had a fucking come apart because they were addressing a black man with dignity and respect now the jury selection had continued on into the next morning but jury selection to obtain the last two took about an hour and it like went into the mid-morning recess now the da his name it the district attorney yeesh his name is chatham called his first witnesses, which would include Sheriff Cochran of LaFour County, Dr. Otkin, who examined the body of Emmett, also C.M. Nelson, who was the black undertaker, um, 
No, excuse me. C.M. Nelson was the undertaker who sent the body to Chicago. My bad. Deputy Melton, who was president... President. Who was present when the body was pulled from the river. There was also Mr. Mims, who was at the river retrieval, and the Hodgman. So it was... Um, the 17-year-old black kid that was mm-hmm. out there che- checking his fishing line and his dad. They're the Hodge boys. And also um, Moses and Mamie. Now, the defense called all the same witnesses, but they also added J.W. Milliam. Milliam. Fuck. J.W. Milliam and Roy Bryant. And they had also said Carolyn Bryant and Juanita Milliam. Um, they also, for whatever purpose... Don't fucking ask me why this was necessary. They were going to call Eula Lee, Roy and JW's mom, as a witness. Why? Riddle me. Because it was on their property? Uh, I have no fucking idea. Because nobody knew that it actually took place at Leslie's. Uh, That was a big fucking secret. Was it character witness for her boys? I guess. Like, who the fuck gives a shit about her opinion about her two fuck-up kids? Everybody like, knows. They don't need a character witness. They've gone ahead and proved that to themselves. Them fuck, right? On, the, on their own. Am I rubbing off on you? Yes. Yeah. I'm getting so excited. I haven't even had caffeine for like days. And I'm like... At this particular juncture, I've had so much caffeine put into my body that I could die and I would remain active for at least 48 hours. I think it's like rubbing off on me through the air. I haven't even touched you. It's just like... It's It's just floating over from my pores. Yeah. Now, the jury went to the Delta Inn when they called for recess and they called an early lunch at 11.15. Okay, court started at nine. They had jury selection for an hour. They had carbs for breakfast, okay? They're hungry. Listen. So they had an (laughs) early lunch at 11.15. Now, the jury went to this place called the Delta Inn. Millam and Bryant had joined Sheriff Shithead um, elsewhere, and the Black Assembly being Miss Mamie, Sheriff Diggs, and the the reporters, as well as Dr. Howard. Now, they had gone to a black-owned place around the way. Now, during that lunch recess, the defense attorney, this little twat, his name is Sidney Carlton, and I'm sorry for anybody named Sidney Carlton, but those two names combined on a fat white lawyer just make me want to punch you in the face. I just thought of Sidney Crosby for a minute, but that's totally different. He's a hockey player. Oh. He's not a fat white judge. He's not either. He's a fat white lawyer. Oh, yeah. That's what I meant. Now. You knew what I meant. I know. (laughs) So Sidney Carlton was able to gather up a group of reporters and start flapping and quacking to this group, basically painting this ugly picture of Emmett. Now, he was like, he basically wanted to set the tone and start those reporters printing stories that would better help the defense okay so he was like emmett was nothing but a menace to society especially against pure white women (laughs) yeah right right i don't believe you sir um he also said that he had gone to the store with the sole purpose of propositioning caroline he said that emmett had assaulted her mauled her even and that the da said and he went on he was like that boy brought his fate on himself he go he he took himself into that store with the sole intent to physically assault that white woman of chastity (laughs) 
Only she couldn't remember what the shit the story was until later. I sorry, I'm laughing because you like you can see this fat fuck just out there. He probably looks like fucking wimpy from the Popeyes. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. <laughs> and he's out there. This 14 year old boy is just pure evil. He went in there with the sole intent to maul this woman. Yeah. Um, and he went on to say that if the boy had any sense at all, that he'd have hopped a train back to Chicago. Now, maybe if he'd done something wrong, he would have. Thank you. Can I get a fucking hi- Can I get a hallelujah somewhere? Amen. Thank you. I don't because- have a hallelujah. I have an amen. I do that shit always stay. Hallelujah. Now, hallelujah. yeah, maybe he would have hopped on a train if the kid thought he'd actually done something that was going to put his fucking life in danger. I don't think anything that kid did that day should have resulted in anything more than a, a like a stiff poke in the chest. Like, hey, don't do that. Don't put the change in her hand. You I, don't do that in don't, the South. Don't be, don't whistle. Don't be rude. Don't, right. Like, because I have to get yeah. after, like, I have to get after, keep in mind, I work with youth. That being said, I have to constantly remind them, like, hey, that's inappropriate. It's not okay to do that. If you want to do, if you want to compliment a person, you say, hey, I think you look really, you look really nice today. You look really lovely. Don't whistle. Don't snap your fingers. Don't be like, woo. No, that's inappropriate. Now, does that, you know, does that warrant me going over there, slapping the shit out of them with something heavy and being like, no, no, hey, don't. That's inappropriate. That's all that Emmett deserved, if anything. I just still, the whistle gets to me i wonder why i don't know if he dude kids let their brain get the best of them uh you know what i mean like my kid has said some shit that i turn around i'm like what the fuck did you just say (laughs) and i don't even think they can stop it from happening and i kind of think that's what happened with emmett like he just wasn't thinking dude and he's like here's this woman and the kid's just like (laughs) yeah it and how loud was it? That's what I wanted. Like, was well, it loud, loud? Was it quiet? It was, it was, it was loud enough obviously. for everybody to hear it. But in any it in any case, did it deserve him being even whipped? No. no. It's a fucking poke. You know what I mean? We just don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Because you shouldn't do that ever. No. But don't do that. I'm the I'm the kind of person like if I get whistled at, I'm like, hey, thanks. But that's just me. That is my personal opinion. I keep I'm my not, head down. I'm like, that wasn't for me. I if I when, look, I'm going to look like an asshole. <laughs> I've been whistled out. <laughs> hey! And I'm like, eh, thanks. Does it upset me? No. Does it offend me? No. But that is me speaking personally for just me. I know that a lot of women don't like that. Yeah. And that's okay. But do you fucking abduct a child in the middle of the night and beat him to death? No. No. Now. <clears throat> oh, shit. I was getting all excited. You're beating up your mic. Yeah. Fuck you, Mike. Listen, Mike. Get your shit together. <laughs> now, remember the white reporter that was allowed to go to Dr. Howard's. Now, he had actually been working as a messenger and kind of like an emissary back and forth between Dr. Howard and the DA. Um, so anyway, he's got all this information for the defense attorney and he like snuck in there and was like, Hey, there's new witnesses with new evidence and the jurisdiction and tying these guys to the whole thing. Like 
pointing to his fucking clients. He's like tying them directly to this murder. Now the processing acute processing acuting. Hey man, we're gonna process acute. The prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney were both like, oh shit, wait, wait, because the prosecuting attorney didn't know either. So now you've got the defense attorney that's like, wait, fuck. And the prosecuting attorney's like, whoa, wait, Yay. fuck. Yeah, they're like, one's, oh shit. And the other one's like, whoa. Now both of them are like, oh shit, because neither one of them knew. So what happens is they called for an emergency recess. So Chatham, the prosecuting, the DA, the district attorney's like, hold up, wait a minute. It's a 22. It's a oh, 22. No. Pew, pew, pew. Pew. So he's like, no, 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 we got to find these people. So they drop the fucking hammer and they're like, we got to find these motherfuckers. So he goes, I'm going to need an emergency recess. And this one could be long. Like, I got to find these people. Now, the judge was like, okay, I mean, I find this to be a reasonable a reasonable mm-hmm. recess so he stated that he needed time to gather these witnesses and that he had to meet with the doctor and the witnesses and you know get all of this shit and it was basically a bunch of black people that were going to gather and point fingers at white dudes so not only that this is i mean this is going to be a task that's hard to manage okay because you not only do you have to find them but you have to keep them fucking safe yeah, and get them to agree to come and do it. Oh, right. So you've got people putting their lives in danger. Now, the defense attorney is completely aggravated, and he accused the state attorney of, of stalling. He's like, no, no, we need to continue at once. And Judge Swango is like, well, I think that if they have evidence and witnesses, and they have the resources to go and gather this, they should be allotted that time. So he said it was a reasonable request. He lets them go. Now... This was basically described as an interracial manhunt because you had black people and white people for the prosecuting, the state prosecutors that were looking for these people. So they are running out to gather the testimony for the prosecution. And there's, like I said, men, women, black and white are all out trying to find these people. And it included the sheriffs and the deputies, the reporters, Dr. Howard, and quite a few other people. Now, the sheriffs had actually gone to the home of Leslie Millam with Dr. Howard. And I'm talking about um, the sheriff from Lafour County. Mm-hmm. So he had actually gone with Dr. Howard to an, uh, investigate the shed where Emmett was. Now, when they went in there, they looked for the blood and they didn't find any. However, Hmm. it had very obviously just been cleaned. And there was cotton and soybeans and corn spread all over the floor. Gee, I wonder why. Hmm. So there wasn't time or resources to further examine the shed because somebody had gone in there, dumped a bunch of water, sprayed whatever chemicals they could, and then threw a bunch of fucking shit on the floor to make it look like... It was messy. Yes. Now, Sheriff Smith, who had gone... Um, he had been going head to head with Sheriff Strider quite a bit, and he was very eager to join the hunt for the witnesses. Now, he advised that no matter how long it took, that he would keep in on the search. Now, Sheriff Smith had been looking for some witnesses before this, and he knew of some of, like, some of them, but getting the witnesses to come was apparently a hell of a chore because people were, they were like, mumbling, like, hey, we know some shit, but I'm I going to fucking pub. Yeah, sorry. I don't no, want to end up like that. There were other witnesses, but they didn't want to come forward. And Frank Young, who was the the little farmhand that traveled 80 fucking miles 
to seek out Dr. Howard didn't actually show up till one o'clock in the morning and he refused to talk to anybody except Dr. Howard. And unfortunately, one o'clock in the morning, he wasn't available. Dr. Howard wasn't available. And he's like, well, I'm only talking to him. All right. So who they did actually find was uh, Willie Reed, who was the 18-year-old boy that had actually walked by the shed on the way to the store. The grandfather, Ad Reed, and the neighbor lady, Amanda Bradley, that all lived right there near um, Leslie Millam's place. So they had all donned disguises and confirmed what Frank Young had already said, all the stories, and they had all been given the promise of protection, and then all three of them were going to be relocated to Chicago after mm-hmm. afterwards. Yep. So there were a great deal of things that... Hold on. There were a great deal of things that were very uncommon for Mississippi in 1955 when it came to the justice of Emmett Till and his murder. Now, Judge Swango, we'll start with him, he was a very fair and even-handed judge and he was one that would conduct a trial that nobody expected because all the white people are expecting to just walk there and be like we'd like to enter a plea and not guilty and have him be like perfect not guilty you're not guilty everybody if you're white you're not guilty no white guilt so he he came forward and he was like no i want a just and fair trial and he he did so, which was, everybody's like, holy shit. Whoa. Yeah. Now, Dr. Howard's team, the Mississippi Underground that had been working really hard with all of the black and white reporters, as well as the NAACP activists, um, had found a lot of white law officials that came forward and they're like, we're on your side. We will help you any way we can. Damn. Totally fucking uncommon for 1955. They're like, wait, what? Yeah. They're like... <laughs> Pardon me? So not only were there sheriffs that were there to seek truth, like um, the Sheriff Smith and Sheriff Cothran. Now, was that because they didn't like Sheriff Strider or did they just want to be able to sleep at night? Or did they really feel bad for the Till family and want fucking justice for Emmett? It's hard to say. But in any respect, those two sheriffs were like, we got your back. Whatever you want us to do, we're helping you. You you want us to go fucking dig people up? Not literally. Exactly. <laughs> you want us to go find people so they can testify? Great. We're with you. So for whatever reasons, this entire group leaps into action. Now, they found the four that were set to testify. So you've got... Frank Young, Willie Reed, Ad Reed, and then Amanda Bradley. Now, there were supposed to be others, like six other people that... They're like, we know some shit, but we also know that people that know some shit and tell some shit end up in some shit. Yeah. And they were like, no thanks. They Hard are pass. in the river and they don't get found. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there was enough room for all six of us in there. So fuck all of that. Yeah. And I can't do it at the end of the day. What I like to say that I have the fucking, what's the word I want to use? Like, I have the fucking fortitude to show up and and do what some of these people did. I don't know, man. That's scary as shit. That's fucking scary. That would be like walking into a fucking courtroom with, like, mobsters and shit. Yeah, and and like say. pointing your finger at, like, Kuklinski. Thanks. You should have heard my stutter yesterday. It was really bad. So Three bangs, four bangs. I am not 100% sure what I got into caffeine-wise <laughs> yesterday. Because I... All of it. Well, all of it. So, anyway, 
That'd be like pointing your finger at the fucking ice man. No. And being like, he did it. And then hoping to God that you lived after that. For at least 30 minutes. Right? So following this emergency recess, the men scramble out to find the witnesses. The trial resumes at 920 the next morning, which would technically be the third day of the trial. Technically. Mm-hmm. The courtroom was so quiet that, that like people were sitting in there and all you could hear was people taking drags off their cigarettes and the ceiling fan. Oh, God. That's how fucking quiet it is. Ugh, dude, the thought of people smoking inside. And I'm a smoker. I don't even smoke inside. My eyes just started watering and I got like a sinus headache. I'm like, (laughs) God, I don't know. I got to call in sick. I can't finish this. I I can't talk to you right now. No. I'm just fucking thinking about it. We're done. So everybody starts arriving and the one sound that like snapped everybody out of it is the shuffle of feet like coming through their courtroom and it was moses wright and it's uncle okay Mm -hmm. so he's making his way to the front of the courtroom which is fucking baking like an oven in there well over 100 degrees jam-packed from fucking wall to wall smells awful smells like the inside of a hobo shoe and a pack of fucking unfiltered marbs so like two hobos Fucking a shoe full of piss. <laughs> exactly. So um, Moses shows up and he's set to testify. And he was the very first witness that was called to the stand. So not only was all of the attention focused on a black man, all of the attention was focused on a black man that was set to testify against two white guys. Uh, so as you can imagine, whoa, ooh, whoa. I guess how full-sided. Moses had been warned about what he was going to do. Okay. Um, he would say later, he would he would talk to a, a reporter and say that he wasn't exactly being brave and he wasn't exactly scared. He just knew that he wanted to do what he was set to do and see justice served. Now, District Attorney Chatham had addressed Moses as Uncle Mose or Old Man Moses. And mm-hmm. I think he was trying to paint that like comfortable photo yeah. or like that, not photo, that like that comfortable th- feeling uh-huh. to the jury. So he's sitting in... Like, Uncle Moses is, is sitting in this big wooden chair, you know, and he's sitting up very straight. And the district attorney is trying not to pay too much respect to him because he knows that that can hurt his case. But yes. he's referring to him as Uncle Mose. Now, he asks about what happened the night that Emmett was abducted. And he, you know, he's like, at 2 a.m., these men show up, they get on the porch, and they start hollering for me, the preacher. And they're talking about how they want to talk to the smart boy from Chicago. And he said, you know, they started by saying, this is Mr. Bryant. So Moses advised Mm. that when he walked out, he recognized Millam and that he had been on the porch with a pistol and a flashlight. When Chatham stopped Moses and instructed him to point out Millam, he was like, he stood up out of the chair, out of, you know, and he points his naughty old man finger and he goes, there he is right there. That big tall guy. Right. So as Moses stands up and he points his finger and he was like, there he is right there. Fucking photographers go batshit crazy. Oh, snap, 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 So, and they're, okay. Now they're taking these photos of this crisp, clean dressed black man. And he's standing in this fucking Mississippi courtroom pointing at a white man going, oh, that fucking guy did it. So Millam, who's sitting over there and he's like, he's all uneasy he's fucking sweaty and he's over there puffing on a cigar and you know he could 
you could tell that he was visibly upset Mm -hmm. that somebody's standing there going, that fucking guy right there. Because he didn't think anybody would have the balls to do it. Exactly. Now, that roll of photo that was actually like expended in a matter of seconds, that's how fast they're taking these photos. That roll of photo was actually purchased on the spot. Like the guy walked up, handed cash money to the photographer and took the roll of film and bailed. Those photos were actually distributed through a wire service through pub to publications worldwide. Damn. This this photo that was on this roll of film was sent everywhere and it was supposed to be like the icon of courage. Okay. So when Moses was asked if he knew Bryant, Moses pointed him out as well. When Chatham asked Moses if there was anyone else with Milam that night, Moses said yes. When he was asked, he pointed at Bryant again. And that's when Roy was sitting there just blank face, zero emotion. JW's like, starting to get all fucking he's like weird dodging. About it. He's like yeah he's like oh shit and he's getting all shifty looks behind him Ooh, right who are you pointing at what, what, what <laughs> i don't know so that's when it was obvious to so many people what reverend what reverend moses had signed up to do because essentially he just signed his own fucking death warrant and moses knew better than anybody else what he just done was going to be fatal for him now, the district attorney walked out with Moses. Hold, please. The district attorney walked with Moses through the rest of the story, ending with him standing on the porch after him had been abducted, wondering what was going to become of him. Now, Moses would tell to the judge and the jury that the next time he saw his nephew was when he was actually being pulled out of that river. So Moses had identified him by the ring that was on his finger that was engraved with his dad's initials. So then when it came to the cross-examination by the defense attorney, Fat Sidney, Fat Sadie, (laughs) that's what I'm going to start calling her. She's going to have a hero sandwich. Just so you know, she's going to have a meatball hero. (laughs) Okay. So the cross-examination began with Sidney Carlton, and he basically came at Moses as though he were the one on trial, like he was the defendant. He was one of those like showbutters. He got up there and he's roaring and rearing and shaking his fists and slapping the table and shaking papers. Okay, all of the fucking course. theatrics. All right, basically like my brother's ex-wife's attorney. <laughs> now, now, so fuck me. As he's going on and he's like berating Moses and he's getting in his face. JW was seen wearing a very cold, calculating smile. So he had been really uneasy when somebody was testifying against him. But when somebody was beating the bricks off of fucking Moses with words, then he suddenly felt comfortable again. Like, you know, oh my God, the world makes sense again. We're berating black people. So Carlton had stopped by the Reverend's home prior to the trial okay so sydney fat sydney goes to the reverend's house and basically told him he warned him he was like you know it's bad luck to testify against white men in a trial bad luck it's not luck it's what it is luck is not the fucking word so fat sadie listen fat sydney (laughs) sydney (laughs) listen fat sydney so he was like, if you continue on your path, you're going to have a lot of bad luck. 
Now, that didn't stop Moses, and it also didn't stop Carlton from continuing to berate Moses on the stand. Basically treated him like a criminal, um, and he was trying to change, like he was trying to get Moses to trip up on the the facts of his story. Mm -hmm. And this wouldn't be the only time that Fat Sidney does this throughout the trial to other people. So Moses is calmly pointing out to Carlton that he hadn't done any of the things that Fat Sidney was accusing him of. So he was like, um, he basically was like, oh, well, there wasn't really enough light for you to identify JW or Roy was there. And he's like, I never said that. And he's like, now, wasn't it Emmett's initials engraved on that ring? And Moses is like, no, I said it was his father's initials, LT, Lewis Till. It wasn't ET for Emmett Till. So he's going, Fat Sidney's going through all the rigmarole to try and get him to trip it up so that he could be like, see, the old man doesn't know. He's just pulling shit out of his ass. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Exactly. So he's sitting there trying to trick Moses into all of these different things. And um, he was like, now it wasn't daylight when you saw the, the vehicle leave. So you can't rightly say what vehicle it was when you said it was a sedan. Moses is like, I never said that either. And it gets to a point where between, you know, frantic gestures and loud questioning and all these theatrics, the, the like the defense is really getting nowhere with Moses. And he's getting frustrated. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the judge looks over at Fat Sidney and he's like, are you done now? And Fat Sidney Carlton's like, fuck it, take a recess. And the judge is like, yes, take a recess. Can we please? Can we? Yes, have some. So he gets nowhere with Moses. He's been loud and obnoxious. And the judge is like, I've had enough of your shit. You need to kick fucking rocks out of my courtroom. Well, after that, Moses didn't go into hiding for the rest of the trial like everybody suspected that he would. He actually hung out at the courthouse. (laughs) Right? So he didn't go north and join his wife out of Mississippi, he stayed. And he was seen, well-dressed, crisp, clean, iron shirts, walking around, head held high, and he was waiting to see what was going to happen. Oh, my. So, right? So, instead of bailing, he fucking, he stayed. So, court actually resumes with the other defense attorney. Now, keep in mind that Roy and J.W. had five, five defense attorneys, now Damn. i <laughs> yeah dude now i won't talk about all of them but the other one that was present his last name's breland he's addressing the court with the information of the new witnesses now he had gone on now now say something else bitch he had asked that the defense be able to address these newly acquired witnesses in the witness room prior to them being allowed to sit in front of the court as a state's witness all of the witnesses were read out loud and all but one of them was actually local black folks so the one that wasn't was c.a strickland he was the police photographer that initially took photographs of emmett's body all the rest of the witnesses were black people that the mississippi underground had found the defense attorney had no idea what they might actually say to the court And this is why they were like, we need to talk to them in that room away from everybody else before they can testify. (laughs) And the judge agreed to the request. Okay. So they had an opportunity to speak to these people beforehand. 
So the judge agrees to the request. They go, they talk, and they move on to the next witness, okay? So while they're having an opportunity to talk to the new witnesses outside of the courtroom, they move on to another witness. Chester Miller was the black under undertaker that was initially present from Greenwood who had taken Emmett's body from the ris- riverside to his funeral to his funeral home, and he was the one that was going to be questioned next. Miller testified that he had been summoned on the 31st of August to the river, where the body was laying in a boat on the riverside. He said that he had to detach the fan from the the barbed wire. I don't like it. I know you don't. So he had to take and detach the barbed wire that held the fan to his neck, which he, it was in the court documents that it was well-wrapped. I hate the way they worded that, and I realize, and I think the reason I don't like it is because it gives you the vision uh-huh. in your head. It was well wrapped. He advised that he was instructed to remove um, that ring. Now, remember, he actually had his assistant do it because his his, his 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 assistant his assistant a sneaky little feathery little assistant assistant his assistant. wow his assistant had already had gloves on so he was the one that took the ring Mm -hmm. off and then plopped it down on the floor of the vehicle okay um the special so they had a different prosecuting attorney that was a special prosecuting attorney his last name is smith and he had actually worked for the fbi prior to becoming a special prosecutor so It was him that said if it was possible for the body to be identified by somebody who really well knew him, Miller said, yeah, I believe so. Before the chance, oh, before the defense had a chance to object, which the judge eventually sustained, they asked Miller to describe the body. Miller had gone on to say that the body was five foot four-ish, about 150 to 160 pounds, and that it appeared to be a colored person. Miller asked, what was the age the body appeared? And he said, well, it looked like a young person. That being said, Miller had also told the special prosecutor about the bullet hole in the head, which was also objected and then sustained. So it went on record as a hole above the right ear. Smith had also asked about the other side of the head, and Miller said that it was all crushed in, cut up, and gashed. He asked him uh, if the injuries sustained were sufficient to cause death. Now, the defense, of course, Fat Sidney and Breland jump up and they're like, objection, which was sustained. The defense stated that Miller was not an expert, but the judge allowed him to answer, but it had to be had to be worded just so, okay? Because they were like, well, he's not an expert. He's just an undertaker. Well, you would think that somebody that prepared bodies is an expert would know a thing or two i mean they have to study a little bit they have to to be able to do that right just saying so it went on as did you see the injury sustained yes sir do you think those injuries sustained could have been a result uh could have resulted in death yes sir now did it result in his death we can't say for sure that's how it like all had to go down Hmm. Oh, I'll, I'll I'll wrap that up too for you. Okay. Now, <laughs> now, so now. S- fuck me. Um, Special Prosecutor Smith had asked about the barbed wire, and they retold about how it was wrapped around the neck, and it was 
becoming harder and harder to dispute the fact that this was a fucking murder. Like the judge and people are looking at JW and and Roy and they're like, murdering motherfuckers. Uh, And the defense is starting to pick up on this. They're like, this, I mean. Oh shit, they're on to you. They're on to ya. Pretty much. So cross-examinations that included Miller as, or asking Miller, the undertaker, if he could tell whether or not those injuries happened before or after death. Breland suggested that you wouldn't be able to tell if those types of injuries were actually sustained in a car accident. And then what? he goes on, yes. No. Yes, 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 yes. Now, when Miller said no, he wouldn't be able to definitely say the court recessed. So Breland is like, "Mm, well, is it plausible that that happened in a car accident and the body sustained those injuries before that? And then the body went into the the river. And the undertaker's like, well, I guess maybe. And he's like, perfect, sustained. Fucking recess. Quit beavering the witness. (laughs) (laughs) God. All right. Now, Robert Hodge wa- Hodges, Robert Hodges was the 17-year-old fisherman, and Mr. Mims was the the landlord, and they both testified that day, further the shadow being cast, that this was definitely murder. Uh, Sheriff Smith took the stand. This is, I like Sheriff Smith. He's fun. Now, He's Sher- better than Sheriff Shithead. We don't like Sheriff Shithead. We like Sheriff Smith. Yes. Smith. 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 Um, he was on the stand and they had a conversation where he stated that he had gone to speak with Roy Bryant at the store and money the next day when he found him asleep in bed. He said that the conversation in the squad car had been very detailed about Roy snatching Emmett from his uncle's house, taking him to the store for Carolyn to identify and that she had come forward, said that's the wrong kid. And that's when he admitted that whoever they had, they had actually turned loose. Now, this totally upsets the fucking defense, right? Let me explain. Let me explain to you why. He jumps up and the defense is like, we want to have this conversation stricken from the record. This was a private exchange between old friends and that Roy didn't know that it was part of of a murder investigation. The testimony of the sheriff was clear. I mean, fuck, you've just admitted to kidnapping. Okay. Now, not only did you say that you're guilty of kidnapping Emmett, anyway, he was the last person, one of the last people to see Emmett alive. So Mm -hmm. not only have you admitted to fucking kidnapping the kid, you were the last motherfucker to see the kid alive. Weird. Not good things. Nope. So that being said, they're like, well, keep in mind, this is the time before the good old Miranda rights. And, you know, this shit hadn't been declared by ye old Supreme Court that gives a person the right to remain silent, which Bryant didn't, and nor did he realize that he could. But Bryant was also aware that anything he said could and would be used against him in a court of law. Meh. Well, as we all know, according to some of my favorite people on YouTube... It is best to shut the fuck up and plead the fifth. <laughs> However, Roy didn't do that. 
and nor did he realize that he could. So the defense was trying to insinuate that Sheriff Smith had obtained the testimony through falsehoods and deceitful tactics. Sheriff Cothran of Lafour was later called up on the stand, and he was up there basically talking about how when the uh, the body was drugged from the river, um, he was the one to go and arrest J.W. So Sheriff Cothran did not use Emmett's name when he was questioning J.W., and he had gone out there, you know, he was like, yeah, we went out there, we got the boy. Now, he said that J.W. did admit that they went out there and they took the boy, but that they had turned him loose in front of the Bryant store. Now, when J.W., Roy, and the whole family, well, J.W. got together with the family, and Roy was already in jail, and then J.W., like, got their fucking story straight, and then allowed himself to be arrested, that was what he was being arrested for, kidnapping. But we turned him loose. Now, this is the whole fucking story that they concocted, and then when he went into jail, he runs up to his little brother, Roy, and he's like, now, listen we took the kid that part's true and we got the wrong one so we turned him loose and we turned him loose in front of your store and he took off to his people's house that's it that's all that's all that's all that's and that's the final truth hey man well not only did they admit to kidnapping Still, they're the last motherfuckers to see Emmett alive. Again, the defense jumps up. They're really quick to object. The judge had to send the jury out of the room. And this actually takes place more than once where the jury has to be sent from the room. Um, and he did so that he could speak with Fat Sidney Carlton about the testimony. Carlton advised that now more than ever, J.W. should have been advised that it wasn't a private conversation amongst friends between, <laughs> this is just betwixt us fellas, <laughs> that this was actually going to be used in a murder investigation and that anything that he said was going to be used against him. Um, anyway, Carlton was like, you know, you, you need to strike this from the record because that conversation is no good and it wasn't just between friends. So the judge overruled Carlton and the jury got to return to the courtroom. The district attorney then asked Cothran if he investigated the di- disappearance of Emmett Till and if he had talked to J.W. J.W. yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to George Bush my way through this. Strategery. <laughs> Yes. That is your strategy now. That is my strategy and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Um, He had had asked JW about it. The sheriff confirmed yes to both questions. And now it was on record that both defendants admitted to kidnapping Emmett. Sheriff, thank you for your hard work and dedication. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Now, Sheriff Cothran would go on to describe the Riverside scene. The defense objected again to the bullet hole, and they had to go back on the testimony and basically say, okay, there wasn't a bullet hole. There was a hole in his head. Um, They also went back on the questioning of Milliman Bryant, the condition of the body, insisting that this damage could have happened to the body prior to it being dumped or that maybe the body had been dumped in the river and it sustained all that damage to its head by bumping rocks on the bottom of the river. No. Yeah, this is the story that the defense is now trying to put in the jury's head. Well, the court was recessed and they were set to return on Thursday morning. Now, Moses Wright had been standing outside the courtroom that Wednesday evening and when a reporter went up and asked him about his courage to testify against white men, he said, some things are worse than death. If a man lives, he still has to live with himself. Oh, I agree. 
Mamie Till, composed and well-spoken, is how she was... This is how John Popham, the white reporter, had described her. That she was composed and well-spoken. He worked for the New York Times. Okay, he was a reporter for up north. Mm -hmm. He also said that Mamie had been described as a pretty brunette, a fashionable young 33-year-old Negro woman who was a far cry from the cropper patch black seen in Mississippi. It was also said that Mamie had an air of confidence and determination about her. She had used proper English, spoke spoke in a... She spoke. She spoke. She spoke. proper English. Spoke her proper English, unlike Angel. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Wow. That she was well-dressed, well-spoken, and she used an audible, firm tone when she spoke. At 33. She was a BB. Mm -hmm. She was younger than me and Mm you. Damn. Barely. I mean. Ugh. Couple months. (laughs) (laughs) Couple months. Plus five years. But whatevs. But whatevs. The reporters had attested that Mamie was very intelligent, dignified, and was considered one of the most respectable Negro women. Thanks. Couldn't you just say woman? Exactly. Just saying. Woman is woman. fine. Yeah. Lady. Female. Female. Special prosecuting attorney Smith spoke in detail about Emmett's father being killed while he was deployed he also talked about emmett's trip to mississippi his disappearance and when mamie saw him at the rainier funeral home maybe just mamie described how she carefully examined emmett's body and determined that corpse at rainer's to be her son she and smith toka hi toka poka <laughs> she and Smith spoke about the ring that was engraved with LT. Mamie said the ring had still been a little bit too big for him and that Emmett had been wearing it and holding it in place with a little bit of string or tape that was wrapped around it. Oh. And that he insisted upon wearing it to Mississippi. Now Mamie broke down only one time while she was on the stand and got emotional when viewing the photo of a Um, of her son's body after he'd been pulled from the river she had to remove her glasses and wipe away her tears she swayed side to side while she was answering mr smith's questions with yes sir that makes me sad dude she was trying to comfort herself because i do that when i start rocking yeah and i'm like yeah so when he asked is this photo a photograph of your son she said yes sir when the defense however took to cross-examinate examinate i'm so sorry (laughs) (laughs) it just doesn't sound right anymore now when the defense had actually gotten up to cross-examine mamie breland had pretty much decided that he was going to turn the tides of who was actually on trial he gets up there and he asks mamie where were you born and where you grew up and basically wanted to take the focus off of jw and roy and put it on Chicago. Okay. Hold tight. It's Chicago's fault. It Chicago did God it. Goddamn Chicago. <clears throat> you sons of bitches. <clears throat> well, you know, those Yankees up north that are always trying to make fucking Mississippi sound so bad that, you know, those those hateful fucking northerners that put undue hate and scorn on the southern state of Mississippi. Now, Breland would get up there and he started with like um 
so where were you born? She was like, well, I was born in Webb, Mississippi. And he's like, but you didn't grow up there. And she's like, no, I grew up in Chicago. And he's like, so you can't really say you know much about Mississippi. And she's like, no, I guess not. And he's like, well, did Emmett ever get in trouble in Chicago? And this was really a loaded question. He was only asking this because he... Dude, the jury saw everything they needed to see about Emmett when they heard black boy from Chicago. That was it. That's all they needed to really know. So it was a loaded question. She didn't really even have to say anything incriminating. Once they heard that you were from Mississippi and you left and you went to Chicago and we've got this black kid from Chicago and Mississippi. Not knowing how we do down here. Knowing how we do. No, that's, I mean, she really didn't even have to answer, but she said, no, sir. But like I said, Chicago, black kid from Chicago, he was already a troublemaker in their fucking eyes. Now, Breland moved on to ask about some life insurance policies, okay? And this is kind of a shitty gig. Mamie had taken out two life insurance policies on Mamie before he went to Mississippi, okay? Mm -hmm. He had got, she'd gotten one that was like 10 cents a week and another one that was 15 cents a week, and they were straight life and life, straight life policies. She was the beneficiary, beneficiary on one, and the grandmother Alma was the beneficiary on the other. Well, he starts asking about these and asks, well, you know, what are you going to do with these policies? And she's like, well, I haven't collected on them yet. And he goes, well, why haven't you tried to collect on these life insurance policies if you have them? And it would have to- it would have totaled something like $400, okay, for both policies. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, I'm waiting for a death, death certificate in order to do so. So Breland went on to say that since she didn't have a death certificate and she hadn't collected on this because up until then he was like, this is just a conspiracy to collect money. Right. Well, since she hadn't, she hadn't actually tried to collect on him, that fucked over his little speech. And then he turns around and he's like, well, perhaps this is all a scam. She's like, what? He's like, the NAACP went and put a body in that river and we pulled it out and they claimed it was Emmett. Now, Emmett, and you don't have a death certificate, so we don't really know he's dead. Jesus Christ. Where's your, get your shovel. Uh Get your boots on. The shit's getting deep. Very deep. So he further insulted Mamie by asking what Chicago publication she subscribed to. And she said, well, the, you know, I, I subscribe to the Chicago Defender. Now an objection, 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 (laughs) your honor, objection. Sustained. Sustained. How many times have you been struck with lightning? Sixty-six times. In the head. God damn. They actually would go on to further ask about these publications. So the objection was made and it was sustained by the prosecutors to withdraw that. Now... Special prosecuting attorney Smith knew exactly where Breland was going with that when he said that, and he warned him not to go, like, not to proceed. So what happened was, Mamie was under fire for supplying photos of Emmett to newspapers, and he made, um, and made her testify that the bloated and battered body was the same smiling boy in the photos that she took at Christmas, which she also gave to the publications. Well, the Chicago Defender is a a black publication. Okay, just keep that in mind. He went on to paint Mamie as a hateful 
I hate the loust. Sorry, one of your kids. I know, just went. I was like, whoa, shit. She was a hateful outsider, focusing her hostility on the entire state of Mississippi, blaming anybody in her path, no matter what. So Breland had also turned the public and the jurors on Mamie with a few choice phrases and words and some hand gestures. Now, the public, um, the special prosecuting attorney, addressed the judge on how incompetent the entire portion of this trial was and was like, listen... If this doesn't fucking make sense in less than 30 seconds, I want this entirely stricken from the record. So the judge was like, one is a photo of Emmett as you saw him when he was alive. And the Mamie was like, yes, sir. He said, now this photo is a photo of your son, Emmett, the last time you saw him as he were dead in the funeral home. Correct? She said, yes, sir. He says, both photos will be submitted to evidence. But they must be cut from the newspaper. Just the photo. Oh. So that they would completely remove that they were posted in a black newspaper in Chicago trying to say that Mamie only did that because she hated the South and she hated Mississippi. And it was this big, like, conspiracy that she was just a hateful Northerner. He's like, no, no, it can all be submitted but we'll cut the photo from the paper and the jury will never know what paper it was posted from. Okay. So now while the jury was in the jury room, they weren't present because the judge had sent them away because, you know, the defense was trying to make a fucking mockery of the courtroom. Um, He went to Breland and was like, if you ask any more questions that are objectionable, you better ask them now. Like, I'm not bringing the jury back in here if you're just going to say a bunch of shit that's supposed to be stricken from the fucking record. Like, we're not going to do that all day. So Breland was like, matter of fact, I do have some questions, okay? And the judge was like, well, fuck, get him out of the way while the jury's not in here. So he looks at Mamie and she, he was like, did you, uh, this is, fuck, this burns me to my very core. He's like, did you advise Emmett on how to conduct himself while he was in Mississippi? And Breland basically lines up this question that's headed straight for, like, Emmett's reputation, uh-huh. okay? Mamie looks at him and he was like, well, yeah, I told Emmett that he needed to mind his speech to white people, always saying yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and to be respectful to white people. Breland asked if white women specifically had been mentioned and Mamie said, no, sir, I said all white people. Again, the question of whether Emmett was a discipline case or not came into focus and whether or not he had been in trouble and did he attend a reform school. Mamie says, no. No, sir, he didn't. So Breland goes straight for the throat. Okay. Follow me on here. Fo- follow me. Follow me. I'm following. Look, look, look me in the eyes. Follow me. He said, you live in Chicago. Is that a fact? She said, yes, sir. In the black belt? Well, yes, sir. He said, and that's all black folks, right? She said, well, no, sir. It's mostly black folks, but there are some white folks there that live. And he said, their homes are there in the black belt. And Mamie said, well, yes, sir. Some do. That was it. Everything he fucking needed to just blow the fucking top off this, okay? There it was. A Southerner's worst fucking nightmare, Nikki. Uneducated, swaggering, race-mixing, fucking black belt people from Chicago. Oh, my God. Emmett got what he deserved because he came from, you know... Where they were mixing races and shit. They will, God damn. 
They were living in the same neighborhoods. Oh, my God. Yeah. They probably use the same fucking toilets, too. Jesus. Fuck. So, basically, Emmett, he was trying to say that Emmett got what he was deserved, got what he deserved because of where he came from. Now, the judge asks, he's like, is that it? Is that all? Like, can we continue? And the defense agreed to rest. So, after this, the jury starts coming back in and they're all sitting down and returning to where they were supposed to be in the juror's box. And Mamie goes back down and sits at the table for black people. Now, even though the jury had not been in the room, every single thing that was said was still recorded by reporters, journalists, and the person that was um, typing up the record of trial for the courtroom. As you can imagine... Everything that the jurors weren't supposed to hear, of course, it was fucking shared with them by everybody else that was in the courtroom. Uh Well, now, Carolyn Bryant, many decades later, when she was talking to the gentleman that wrote this book, Timothy Tyson, The Blood of Emmett Till, she goes on to talk about how awestruck she was by Mamie. She basically said that she'd been in court worrying about whether or not her kids were going to grow up without a fucking daddy because they're, you know, her husband might be tossed in the penitentiary for being being a kidnapper and a fucking murderer she wasn't thinking about anything else but then she saw mamie walk into the courtroom and here's this woman who has had her son brutalized in every way imaginable and she still has the the fucking confidence and determination to come into the courtroom damn her child her only son is dead now and there she is steadfast and unwavering to testify at the trial for the murderers that are responsible for fucking killing her kid and carolyn's like how did she make it through you know she said that any of the black witnesses that had already taken the stand had already made their way out of mississippi like they got up on the stand except for moses they got up on the stand they were like bam that guy did it as soon as they walked out of the courtroom they were on a fucking train they were gone Willie Reed was one of those witnesses that the Mississippi Underground had gone and gotten. The 18-year-old boy that lived in Sunflower County next to the Sheridan place where Leslie Millam was the plantation manager. Now, he was the one that would um, tie JW to the murder with his words. Damning words. He got up there and, much like Moses Wright, when the time came for him to point out the man that was responsible, they said, who did you see, you know, that drove the truck with Emmett onto the property. He was like, well, Mr. Millam did. They were like, well, is he in this courtroom? He stands up, doesn't hesitate, and he goes, well, there he is. He's sitting right there. He's that bald, tall son bitch right there. That big fucker right there. Points him out. He's sitting right over there. Now, Willie had recounted how he left his granddad's place really early that morning to head to the store, how he had heard the terrors in the shed at Leslie Millam's. He testified that on his way back, he was you know, had a full day's work to get to and that he saw the two-tone green truck go past him with the black men in the back. And he said, I saw the four white men's in the cab and the three colored men's in the back. And when they said, you know, what else did you see? He said, well, I seen a little colored boy in the back. Now this kid is scared to death. Well, he's 18 years old, black kid testifying against white men. And he's having a hard time, like mustering up the volume that he needs to like say things well they had to stop at one point in time and they were like boy find your base like we've got to be able to hear you so he has to stop and collect himself God, i would too i'd be like 
See, and I don't kill me. (laughs) Right. I get worked up about shit, whether I'm scared or angry. And I'm like, fuck, there he is right there. He fucking did it. And then I realize how loud I'm talking. Can you please take it? You're here and I need you to be down here. Okay. Put your fucking eyebrow down. Take it from a 10 to a two. You're starting to piss me off. (laughs) And your eyebrow slowly goes down. When I get upset, I fucking, I get the people's eyebrow and one of my eyebrows creeps almost to the top of my fucking forehead and then i start getting real loud i'm like hey and my husband's like bitch take it from a 10 to a 2 and put your fucking eyebrow down mm-hmm. and i'm like oh <laughs> all right my and eyebrow's always up like it doesn't matter what emotion it is mine's I'm always look, up i'm i'm very skeptical all the time so once willie is able to put a little bass turn the volume up and talk he goes on to talk about how there were men on both sides of Emmett, and he would go on to talk about how he saw a photo of Emmett in the paper and that he recognized the boy. And he wasn't, you know, he, he was like, I recognized him, but I couldn't remember where until later. So the special prosecutor. Whoa. Prosecuted editor. I like special it. electrocution. <laughs> Fuck. Um, the special prosecutor says, was it Emmett Till? And Willie said he wasn't 100% sure, but the photo favored him. When Willie addressed the sounds that were coming from the shed, he said that he heard beatings and whippings and, like, pistols on bone. Uh. Yeah. And he said, which all of that was objected and it was sustained. The Kay. fuck? I know. Because he, they couldn't... Um, they couldn't verify that what he was saying was factual. I heard him getting whippings. I heard him taking licks. But you can't say it was done this way because you only heard it. You didn't see it. Okay. I, I guess I get that. I don't know. So in a court of law, yeah, I can see where it's objected and then sustained. So Smith goes on to hand a photo of Willie to Emmett. And he goes, you know, does this resemble Emmett? And again, objected objection and it's sustained because you're feeding the witness does this look like emmett uh-huh. well so smith had to try a different tactic and he goes have you ever seen this boy before and that is where willie goes yes sir that's the boy in the back of the truck there we go ting winning because you can't fucking object to that was worded just right the story was told then about how jw had come out of the shed for a drink how he had his pistol and he heard hollering whimpering and licks he says the smith says was it one or two licks he goes sir it was a whole lot of licks oh lord so a silence then falls over the courtroom so what do you hear Uh (sighs) and people are listening so this little black boy 18 years old shouldn't say little you're probably a you're basically a grown man at that point but, but mentally i mean you're, you're just a, a kid. kid you're a kid i have an 18 year old it's a kid he's sitting there and he's he's talking and people are listening and it had been allowed at the time for people to sit around and drink beer in court nobody's fucking drinking in court they're actually paying attention and now millam and bryant are starting to look around and they're like oh fuck because the jury's paying attention like people in the courtroom have stopped and they're like Mm. how how many licks and this kid's like a whole lot well there was no laughter no smiles no drinking of beer and 
all five of the defense attorneys go fucking white as sheets. They're just pale fucking... Oh, shit. Willie completed his testimony about he went up, got a bucket of water to take to the other witness, Amadna Bradley, and the whippings and the screams could still be heard. That after he delivered water to Miss Bradley, he was on his way home, and the truck was gone, and the shed had gone quiet. The defense immediately moved to have this testimony stricken from the record. Two motions that were both de- <laughs> denied by the judge. Of course. Maybe because now Millam is directly tied to the fucking murder and the jurisdiction has been exposed because it took place in Sunflower. Me. Now, Mandy Bradley and uh, Grandfather Reed both testified, solidified the story, and the defense, or well, the state. So the state rested its case at 115. Now, a lot of people were like, fuck, you closed up too soon because there were other witnesses. Remember the little kid, not the little kid, the uh, young farm worker, Frank mm-hmm. Young. Um, disappeared he had been seen outside of the courtroom like waiting for his turn no more disappeared nobody knows uh uh-uh. like forever nobody knows oh no well so several witnesses had actually bounced and the state had to close up their case a little bit prematurely because if they're not there and they can't testify we're done James Hicks, the man that was actually um, working for the Mississippi Underground, wanted to talk to the two men, the two colored men, that were working with Millam and Bryant that night, but nobody could find him, and Frank Young had disappeared, so the case was like, we got nothing left. The state case. So the defense moves to Swickly... Swickly. Swickly. I I just want you to know that we're Squickly going to do this. Swift and quickly. (laughs) Swickly. Swift and quickly. Swickly. Squick and quiffly. <laughs> Swick and quiffly. Uh, Jesus Christ. Fergus. That's a fucking maniac behind the microphone. Jesus. All right. The defense then moves to have est- evidence excluded, testimony stricken from the case, and they're like, not guilty. Let's just go with a not guilty plea. The judge dismisses all these motions, so the defense comes back and they're like, we want to talk to Carolyn Bryant. Mm-hmm. So it was timed for the bruised Southern Lily to get up on the stand and tell her piece. And her story was basically, you know, all five of the defense attorneys are like, it's time for the black beast rapist to make an appearance. After Carolyn had been sworn in, to tell the goddamn truth, the whole fucking truth, and nothing nothing but but the the truth. truth. So help you, Jesus. She gets up there and does exactly the fucking opposite. The night at the store in question, okay? Special prosecuting attorney, thank God for you, Mr. Smith. He breaks in and objects and was like, none of this is connected to the case. Where you're going with this right now? How's it connected to the murder? Because now they're not even trying to do... They're not even trying to defend the fact that they kidnapped Emmett. Because at this point, fuck, that's out in the open. The jury's already known. Everybody knows that you agree or not agreed. You admitted to kidnapping Emmett. But now what they're going to do... They're not going to say that they didn't do it. They're going to say, why? Now the defense has moved to... This, let me tell you why they did it. Okay, let's let's tell me why. Okay. 
Now, because they couldn't prove that Carolyn's testimony was going to be admissible, the jury had to be sent out. Back to the, they took the jury, judge, the, so prosecuting attorney Smith was like, "Uh uh-uh, we don't know that anything she's going to say is actually admissible or connected to the murder. So they have to go away, right? Because you weren't involved. It wasn't connected to the murder. No, it was not. It's why they decided to be fucks and went and committed the murder, but it doesn't have anything to do with the actual murder. Correct. Now, the jury is sent out of the room, and at this point, the defense is like, shit, there's too much evidence. They already know that they went, took the boy, and now it's likely they murdered him. So, fuck it. We're going to focus on why they had to murder this kid. Now, the most peculiar point, like the queerest fact of all, is the fact that they wanted to admit evidence that would further damn their clients. And the prosecuting attorney's like, you motherfuckers. And they're trying to appeal to the 12 white men in the box and say, okay, it's true. They did take the boy. And well, we're not going to say they murdered him, but let me tell you why they would have if they did. So 50 years later, Carolyn admits to Mr. Timothy that her testimony was a lie, right? Remember that? Mm -hmm. And that she couldn't remember what the truth was, but she knew that her truth was a lie. In 1955, she told the court why Emmett had it coming. Truly sad thing is that she knew that Emmett didn't deserve a goddamn thing. She even said so. She didn't even tell her husband about the encounter. It was Juanita and other people that had seen this shit go down that had actually made its way back to Roy. She didn't even tell him. So what had actually taken place that she, you know, didn't even tell her husband about the incident right away? He had to fucking question about it later. Um, there had been only smart talk. There was no attempted rape, no manhandling of Carolyn. And at this point, no one really needed to hear her testimony because it's all a bunch of bullshit anyhow. But what comes out of her mouth is Breland is like, well, I know the jury can't hear this because it's not connected to the murder. But for the sake of court record, Uh let her testimony be heard because the equivalent to that is there's enough people in this room that are going to hear what she says and they're subsequently going to turn and tuck tail and run to the jury and be like, did you know that he basically wiped that, raped that white woman? By giving, put the change in her hand and whistled at her. They take the take the testimony of Carolyn. Now, even though it's not going to sub- be submitted to the jury as part of the trial, they're taking it for the record's sake. He, so the Breland and Carlton start talking to Carolyn. And at this point, she's like, well, he had come. Well, now keep in mind that the N word was used quite a bit. And I'm not going to regurgitate that filthy shit. But she was like, well, this boy came in and um, grabbed me and said, hey, baby, how about a date? And talked about, you know, what's the matter, baby? Can't you take it? I've she she refused to say the word. So the defense attorneys were like, he fucked white women before. And she's like, I'm not even going to spell the word or give you the letter that he the letter, the first letter of the word he used but said that he had been with white women before and how he grabbed her by the waist, how he grabbed her by the hand, said goodbye, and he was unwilling to leave the store when his cousin came in there and grabbed him by the elbow and tried to drag him out. 
said that he had wolf whistled at her and that he had made like inappropriate gen like oh references God. to his genitals to her that that was what had all gone down so the defense was happy to demonstrate all of this like of oh he whistled were. like this you mean he pointed to his genitals like this so of course carlton and braylon are they're over there making this huge fucking theatrical show about it and carolyn this wilted little flower is like mm-hmm. just yeah. like that that dirty pervert he did like that he did like that no that's your finger do like this yeah. <laughs> that's your finger that's, that's your finger go like this <laughs> I'm sorry, this one's crooked. No, that's your finger. Go like this. So, Carolyn would further advise how she had been home alone without a man to protect her because Roy had been making a delivery of shrimp to a different county. Uh-huh. And that was that was her testimony that the jury wasn't supposed to hear, but they did. Of course they of course. did. Now, Dr. L.B. Otkin was the local physician that had been called to testify after the jury returned. Otkin basically said that he was there to uphold the purity of the South, and the boy had it coming. He said he was regarded as an expert since he had seen dead bodies before. Now, an undertaker that was black from Greenwood, he's no expert. No, he's not. He knows nothing. He don't know shit. But this white guy... That has seen a dead person before. He's seen dead people. He's a physician. He's an expert. <laughs> a expert. He's an expert. <laughs> Fucking, yeah, he's something. Um, he said that the body was very badly swollen, that the skin was basically falling off the meat of the corpse, and it was badly mutilated. He literally confirmed that the body was as bad as every photo had shown, but he couldn't expertly say that those injuries were sustained before or after life had passed. What? And he couldn't expertly say that those injuries were sustained by somebody beating on him. They could have been a car accident. His body could have sustained all those bumps, bruises, gashes, and bullet holes by being dragged along the bottom of the river, sir. I can't expertly say that that's a bullet hole. That could have been a stick what got poked through his eye. Because that happens all the time. We see this all the time. Now, my favorite part... My favorite part. I don't think anybody could have properly identified that body. So, Breland says, could a mother have identified that body? And, of course, Dr. Rotkin would go on and say, I doubt it. And that's my expert answer. Special Prosecuting Attorney Smith then goes after Otkin and says, was the body of that of a colored person or a white person? And he said, well, I, I couldn't expertly say. So the pressing acute, wait for it, because this is fucking awesome. I love this guy. So Smith looks at him and he's like, wait a minute. So you couldn't expertly tell whether it was a white person or a black person. He goes, no, when we pulled the body out, except for a few bruised spots, that body was white as you and me. And he goes, then why did you send it to a colored funeral home? Hmm. If you couldn't tell in super segregated fucking Mississippi whether that was a white person or a colored person, except for the bruises, why did you send that body to a colored funeral home? Because wouldn't that be a big kick in the dick for a white person to be prepared by a black man in a black funeral home? Yeah. Just saying, you expert. Raxpert. It's Raxperts. 
Now, Sheriff Shithead, Mr. Strider, was able to speak a few more turds of his own during the trial, because why fucking wouldn't he? He got up there and went on to talk about how badly decomposed the body was, that the skin was slipping off the body, if you oh, will. Oh, God. How the bones were definitely in the water for 10, hell, maybe 15 days. Yeah. See that face you're making where you look like you just ate ass? <laughs> ate ass that hadn't wiped? I, just, I got that just ate ass face. Ugh. So, he goes on to say, that body had been in the water for 10, hell, maybe 15 days. The skin was slipping off the body, which means it couldn't possibly have been Emmett because that body had been in the water far too long. Emmett only been missing a handful of days. Wait for it. And share shit for brains said <laughs> that he would have been properly investigating all of this if I hadn't been tied up in court with a body that the NAACP had planted in there conspiracy oh my god i could have been properly investigating who that really was but i've been tied up in all your court business your business so he couldn't say that the body was that of a colored person or a white person well now when we pulled it out of there and we unwrapped that fan from his neck he was just as white as me and you except for the bruises okay um and then but wait there's more i'm not done yet Oh, good. He, oh, good. Yeah. He looks at the jury and says, and I tell you what, I don't think I could have identified that body if it were my own son. <laughs> yeah. Now soak it up. I'll let it sit for a minute. I'm sure everyone has the look on their face like I do. Mm-hmm. Dagger eyes. You motherfucker. Sheriff shit for brains. Sheriff shit for brains. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't identify that body to not even if it were my own son. So of course the defense jumps up because they think you know, hallelujah, praise all be the expert and sheriff shit for brains says. So they make the motion again to send not guilty, which the judge denies. So closing arguments are then made. Now prosecuting attorney Chatham gets up and he was like. Power for closing statement. Even Mamie herself, like, was whispering. She's like, he's doing so good. He's doing so good. Yeah. Even she, she like, told him later. She's like, you did the best you could. Oh. I know. He went on to say that they should have had a plea for guilty, that the concern of what was happening in and out of the court needed to be morally right. He sent the blood of Emmett Till into the cold hands of Bryant and Millam with the words, Preacher, we want to see that boy. He said they didn't show up at 2 o'clock in the morning to play cards. And sadly, the best example that the special prossing acuity... Uh, acuity. Prossing acuity. <laughs> attorney. Prosecuting attorney. The, <laughs> the acuity. <laughs> wow. All right. Try again. Okay, the so as they're doing the closing arguments, Chatham gives his special prosecuting attorney, Smith, gets up to give his. And of course, the defense is like, well, you know, we got one more thing to say. Sheriff Shithead. Sheriff Shithead. Uh, well, now I know that I went on to sign a death certificate, but I didn't look at the name on it because I was busy with trial business. Um, I'm not even sure it was Emmett's name on that death certificate 
Oh my God. So you're neglecting your job? Yeah, but it's our fault for having him wrapped up in court stuff. Uh, well, fuck, I would hate for you to not look at a fucking name that you signed on a death certificate. Correct. Because we've got you wrapped up in court shit yep. over a fucking murder. Yep. I could have properly been investigating this here murder. Even though you didn't give a fuck before. Mm, no, he didn't. Well, prosecuting attorney did the very best he could with this example, which is shitty because basically he likened Emmett to that of an old dog. Let me let me explain this. He said that when it came to identifying Emmett, it was much like an old family dog that had gone missing. And when the PA son had found the half-rotted mongrel of a dog he still knew it was his dog when he went to the house and grabbed his dad he said papa that's my dog right there that's old shep he claimed there was no need for police an undertaker or an expert doctor to identify the dog that he loved and cared for just like mamie was able now to identify the body of her son no matter the condition that it was in they murdered that boy and they were they were trying to be cowards by sinking him sinking him to the bottom of the river with a wire wrapped around his neck now, was that like a huge disrespectful way to get your point across? In my eyes, yes. But trying to make a point, that was the best he could do. Like, my son found the body of his dog half rotted, missing its fur, and he still knew it was his dog because he loved and he cared for it. Mm-hmm. Same way that Mamie, no matter what condition you brought her son back, she loved him. She cared for him. That was a piece of her too. You can't tell me that she wasn't able to look at that body and go, yeah, that was my son. Because they're still clinging to the hope of, no, 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 that wasn't Emmett. We're not even sure he's dead. He could be frolicking about the hills right now for all we know. He's hidden somewhere in Chicago. Out there fucking those white women. Yup. Yup, in that fucking race mix in Chicago neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Jesus fucking Christ. So, when they get to the very end of this, the, deven- the defense basically started closing their case with, like, where's the motive? And this is where Carlton, Fat Sidney, decided to go on and share Carolyn's testimony that they didn't get to hear. He's like, well, where's the motive? You know, even though the the... The woman was sexually manhandled by a Negro and disrespected and basically raped. They just turned the boy loose after they abducted him. They didn't kill him, but if they did, that's why. It's just a coincidence since nobody's seen him. So essentially, Fat Sidney went on to tell the jury exactly what they weren't supposed to hear. Um, Of course, you know, he's like leaving out the part where jw and roy admitted to kidnapping emmett he just went on to say like well you know if they did it would be because and was like shmee 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 about what carolyn said and of course as mamie would later put in her memoir they saved the worst for last they basically accused moses and the naacp of collusion and grave robbing and said that they had a political agenda that they had gone out, found a body, put Emmett's ring on it, and then dumped that body in the river and called it Emmett. And the defense ends with, you must acquit. Every last Anglo-Saxon one of you has the courage to do it. (laughs) Sorry, I giggle. Like if somebody addressed, every last Anglo-Saxon one of you, I'd have been like, are you fucking high right now? 
What are you smoking? What the fuck did you, what'd you get into when we were on rice, rice Rices. How was that rices? <laughs> it was pretty obvious um, that when the jury was sitting there, seething with fucking hate and disdain for all the northerners who had brought this attention to their state, a band of sunburned fucking farmers that <laughs> were supposed, was supposed to be a jury of peers, were sitting there pissed off because their way of life was basically under fire. And at 2.34, the jury would retire to decide their verdict. And at this time, after surveying the jury, Mamie reached over to Dr. Howard, Representative Diggs, and the other black witnesses and was like, we should retire too. Like, we just need to go. We're done here. We're done here. And the still shaking terrifying terrifoid terrifoid hi he was, he was so terrifoid terrifoid it's a mississippi thing <laughs> no one understand yeah, you wouldn't get it anyway back at the ranch the still terrified shaking 18 year old willie reed that is like can we please go can oh we please God, get the fuck out of here go. they wrap him up to start towing him out and they're all headed back to mound bayou mississippi now, Mill and Bryant and their people and all of their accomplices had not really expected the audience that had arrived for the entire trial. Now, they were pretty confident that they could keep this all local and kind of swept under the rug, which the exact opposite had taken place. It wouldn't be regional or, you know, local. Now it's national. This crime was basically whispered, and it didn't... It didn't get whispered as a bad rumor throughout Mississippi. They had fucking reporters from California, New York, Nevada. I mean, didn't didn't take long for everybody everywhere to know their names, know their faces. And that uh-huh. was something they were really unprepared for. Yeah. Um, when the jury did return with their verdict to give their deliberations, the crowd had started to thin. And, you know, people had, like, gathered, and they're like, uh, uh, uh. And the crowd starts thinning out. Eight minutes before a decision was made to get Cokes. They'd what? Been, they were in there for eight minutes and they sent somebody to the store to get him Coca-Cola. We can't proceed unless we have an ice cold Coke. Well, duh. I mean. Basically what happened was it was an hour-long deliberation which was basically basically staged by the defense to give the air that, you know, they were really putting forth the effort to give justice to Emmett. Now, Judge Swango had the jury return and asked them if they reached their verdict. The jury foreman, um, his name was J.A. Shaw, jumped up and said, we have, they're not guilty. Oh, my God. So, of course, loud burst of celebration basically erupts throughout the entire courtroom. And the judge stops and said, I told you to bring me a written verdict and to deliver it properly so he sends them back to the jury room where they say blah 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 on paper come back a few seconds later and he holds up the piece of paper and shows it to the judge and he goes we the jury find the defendants not guilty so the reporters are shouting the photographers are snapping pictures there's hugs there's claps on the backs you know the I mean, basically, it's like smiles and gushing and, oh, good job, and we all knew you didn't do it. Whatever. Pretty much, dude. Um, There was actually a... (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so fucking disappointing. So, there's Carolyn Bryant that 
comes out and the reporters are like what do you think and she's like oh thank god my children don't have to grow up without a daddy oh my god right that's that was her quote that was the only thing on her lion ass mind thank god my children don't don't have they don't have to grow up without their daddy i'm sure he's an amazing daddy too fuck <laughs> so the jurors then file out they are following up on their civic duties they're congratulating Millen and brian on their wondrous victory telling the reporters it was the hardest decision but we had to say not guilty because let's face it that body couldn't certainly be identified it'd been in the water long long time it was real badly decomposed there's just no way that we could say for sure it was Emmett. jesus fuck Several statements had also been made by more honest jurors that said, well, now, if we hadn't stopped to have a Coca-Cola, it wouldn't have taken that long. Holy shit. And one juror actually had the nerve to say, well, we almost felt bad. She could have had a tear out of me if Miss Mamie would have tried a little bit harder. Oh, my God. Saying that she didn't get emotional enough on the stand. She didn't try hard enough. She almost had a tear out of me, but... Jesus. So, the the jury never doubted that Millam and Bryant were guilty the entire time. And everybody really agreed that, like, well, you know, if you hadn't gone after a white woman, if you hadn't insulted her, if you hadn't tried to rape her... Whatever. So... The 14-year-old basically committed suicide, and it was his choice. And the mm-hmm. NAACP put him in the water. Um, so after all of that, so they've got conspiracy theory, grave robbing, and he brought it on himself, essentially, is what we're, we're That's where we're ending this. Now, Mamie, Willie Reed, Charles Diggs, and everybody else had gone from uh, Mound Bayou mississippi up to memphis and they were promised airfare for willie and everybody else to go back to chicago um and they were all traveling quietly when the nose knows when the news broke on the radio jubilations and shouts of joy were being made throughout the entire airplane and mamie said it was like people were celebrating the fourth of july and that nobody traveling was surprised by the verdict And while there was not a cheerful reporter in the house, they did say it was a fair trial. Whatever. It was a fair trial, but not the end. Not Uh, the deliberation. I don't think any of it was probably not really. I don't know. I think it was the fairest it was going to get for Mississippi. I'm surprised they even fucking had one. Thank you. Now, Bryant and Millam told a reporter the following year, okay, the following year, how they actually killed Emmett and dumped him in the Tallahatchie River. Did you hear me? Did you hear me say that out loud? They full-blown admitted to killing him and dumping in the river. And thanks to the double jeopardy law, they couldn't be tried for the crime again. Well, I think everybody in there knew that they were guilty, but they oh, yeah. didn't want to they didn't want to go there. So that was that um uh Bradford, that journalist, he paid him $4,000 to give that story. They full-blown admitted that they did murder him. They did dump him in the Tallahatchie River, but they couldn't be tried for it again. Ha! Fuck you! Sons of bitches. And your right. chicken strips. <laughs> Calvin said that the other day. 
I said, well, you didn't say fuck you part. I was getting all worked up about something, like just talking yeah. about something. I was like, so fuck you. And he's like, and your chicken strips. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> okay. I like it. Following this, there were a great many of dealings concerning the blanket state blanket statements that had been made and the accusations towards the NAACP. There were quite a few scandalous dealings, publications, and even Eleanor Roosevelt, her step herself stated that the jury of the Till murder trial must have uneasy consciences. There were quite a few political protests, rallies, and Mamie held her ground all the while. Now, we're not going to cover all of these because I realize that these are subsequent events and they are a piece of the story, but they're more political than they are true crime. And let's face it, we're not a political podcast. No, God, no. Um, That being said, one notable thing that I will touch on Okay. Following the reading about the lynching and having wept over photos that were posted in Jet Magazine and being so moved by the speech of Dr. Howard and his first-hand account of the story, a preoccupied lady of color would stew about this for days. Now, only four days later, Miss Rosa Parks would refuse to give up her seat on the bus for a white man and defying the laws of segregation in Montgomery, refusing to go to the back of the bus. Even after being stopped and told by the driver that she had to, she thought of Emmett Till and refused, ending in her arrest, and it started the Great Montgomery Boycott of the bus line. The impact of the Emmett Till murder was pretty far-reaching. There were quite a few people that, if you go back and look at quotes in regards to when they learned about it, even uh, Kareem Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, when he talks about learning about Emmett Till. He's one he's one of those people that didn't find out until like way later. Yeah. And he's like, how did I not know this about my own history? For real. Well, June 1st, 2005, federal authorities actually exhumed the body of Emmett Till from a private grave site in, uh, in Chicago. 50 years after his murder, um, they actually bring him up. They, hold, they held a short prayer service and they took the metal casket and the concrete vault that he was in, and they had his very first autopsy. Oh, my. In exhuming the body of Emmett, the authorities were seeking to confirm his identity and look for anything, even at this late date, to serve as a clue in whether or not the determination of his murder. As the Justice Department reports, they actually explained that this is not the first time that Emmett Till's case was reconsidered. They actually opened it. They asked to investigate again in 2004, and there was no federal jurisdiction at the time. Again, in 2000, 2007, a uh, grand jury in Mississippi, which the case was referred to, decided not to issue charges. But that same year saw the passage of the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act of 2007. That was a law that was set up with the Justice Department responsible for investigating civil rights-related uh, crimes prior to 1970 that resulted in death but remained unsolved. So it was part of a manu- like a mandatory annual status report. So through new evidence that they found it prompted the department of justice to reopen the case and it's still open at this time observers have speculated that it must be related to the information released in timothy tyson's 2017 book the blood of emmett till 
which was the book that we used to write these episodes. That's the reason that they decided to reopen the case. Um, That being said, Carolyn Bryant, the woman Till was accused of making advances towards, told Timothy Tyson in the interview that contrary to her testimony at the trial, he did not grab her. He did not threaten her. Here's my surprise face. Here's the surprise face. Uh, The news prompted the Till family to push for a new investigation. Now, unfortunately, Millam died in 1980 and Roy Roy Bryant died in 1994. Mamie Till, who would die in 2003 as Mamie Till Mobley, um, was never able to see her son's killers incarcerated. But perhaps this new investigation will bring a sense of closure to a case that was so unjust it sparked a revolution through the entire United States. Damn. And that's the end. I don't like it. I am done. That's the end. Moving on. Moving on. Next Thanks. week. Next oh. week? Well, A, first I want to say you kicked ass on these. I Thanks. had nothing to do with any of it except for editing and going, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, it was it was mentioned in the Facebook group. They're like, this must have been so hard because Nikki barely talked. I'm like, well, I wrote the episodes and in order to let Nikki have a break, because being a single mom with three children and trying to do everything else that she does. And going through a divorce all at the same time. Like everything. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to take over these episodes. I'm going to write these. And so I took the reins like I, as the presenter. Nikki was just my sidekick for this one. Yeah, I had the option to help present, and I was like, nope, I'm good. I'm good. Give me a minute. Yep, nope. So you kicked ass on them. Hey, thanks, And um, yeah, next week I'll be more vocal. Uh, (laughs) And we're going to have something fun coming up next week. And like we said, the week after that, we have another fun thing. And then we'll get back into more bull, not bullshit, but more, which some of it is bullshit, but we'll get into more cases and all that stuff. But yes, yes. So maybe don't lie under oath Mm -hmm. and And uh, stay out of chalk lines. lines. Goodbye. Goodbye.